you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. I'm Roger, and thanks again for tuning in. You know, for those of you who listen in, you know I'm passionate about speaking with independent operators out there and the challenges that we all face in running restaurants, arguably the most difficult business that I've ever been involved in. And not just during COVID-19, which of course is the greatest crisis ever to affect our industry, but it's so much more than that. It's about the nitty-gritty operations of restaurants from someone who's got 30-plus years experience. So I'm super excited to speak with Ms. Elizabeth Blau in this week's episode. And she is the owner, impresario, and restaurateur of a highly acclaimed restaurant called Honey Salt. But on top of that, she is really credited, and this is the incredible part, she has worked with some really illustrious people, she's got really high connections, and she is credited pretty much with transforming Las Vegas, Nevada into the celebrity chef destination that it has become. So we're going to talk all about that, but then we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of running restaurants. So we are going to talk about the successes and the failures and the trials and the experiments and how she's pivoted and how she's coping you know, with the same crisis that we're all dealing with now. Not only that, she's a judge on Iron Chef America. She's also a James Beard nominee. So much in this episode, so don't miss it, and thanks for staying staying with us. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, and these are engaging topics that help restaurants build their brands, rock their profits, deliver amazing guest service experiences. And with me today is Ms. Elizabeth Blau, the illustrious owner of a restaurant in Las Vegas called Honey Salt, but she's much more than that, and you're going to find that out. So welcome to the show today, Elizabeth. I'm so happy to have you here. Oh, thank you. Thrilled to be here with you, virtually. You know, it's always my pleasure to speak with, you know, veteran operators, and you've got a 30-year history in restaurants and restaurant operations, and, you know, quite impressive, of course. And I always love to start by finding out how you got interested in the business, how you first started. Were you younger? Did you get into it later in life? What happened to you, and how did you get into you know, the hospitality industry? Well, it's always a great question. Um, So I definitely started very early in life. My parents are passionate foodies. And at a young age, we did a lot of traveling and and a lot of eating. And so my first restaurant job, um, I was 16. And I was the taco girl at happy hour at a at a Mexican restaurant in Connecticut where I, I grew up. And so that's really kind of the uh, kind of unglamorous way that I started. And I worked all through co- college in, in restaurants. I went to Georgetown, some great restaurants in D.C. Um, my senior year, I started a catering business. But really, I thought I was going to pursue the law. Um, I was a government international relations major. And, uh, so, you know, life takes you on all kinds of different journeys, but, um, I did my graduate work at Cornell at the hotel school and then met the incredible Maccioni family in, in New York city and, and went to work with them and then did the deals for them to open their Osteria del Circo and as well as Le Cirque at the, uh, what would have been the new Bellagio and that's 
uh, gosh, uh, over 20 years ago. And so I moved to Las Vegas about 22 years ago. And I guess the rest is uh, is history, so to speak. So we have um, um, eight restaurants. We have uh, five in Canada and, and three in, in Las Vegas. And um, we have an international consulting business. And so I am rooted in day-to-day operations of the restaurant industry, but um, the consulting business takes us on really exciting projects um, all over the world. Now, those restaurants are in Vancouver, if I'm correct, or are they all over? Uh, yep. So five are in Vancouver, Canada, and three are in, in Las Vegas. All right. That's, that's quite a lot to manage and operate, and I'm sure it takes you not only all over the world, but uh, no, day, no two days are the same, I'm sure. That is correct. So, you know, like you said, the Marchione family and some of those restaurants obviously um, Le Cirque and, and what you've mentioned, internationally famous, highly acclaimed. I mean, that, that led to bigger projects. And one of the other things that I'm familiar that you've done is you worked side by side with Steve Wynn, who, you know, needs no introduction, obviously, in Las Vegas as the casino and entrepreneur, entrepreneur entrepreneurial impresario, I guess I would call him. Um, I had an opportunity to meet him once in Sun Valley, Idaho, where I lived a couple of years back, and he spends, you know, some winters there. Uh, we didn't have an extensive chat, but I met him briefly, but, you know, uh, his name precedes him. And you literally were instrumental in starting this whole celebrity chef movement, which is incredibly impressive. Like, how did all that come about? Because, you know, celebrity chefs are still all the rage around the world. And, you know, many of them are so noteworthy and they've done such incredible things and they've built their own networks. And you had a large part in sort of paving the way for that. Do you want to tell us that story? Sure. Well, you know, I, I, I must admit at a, at a young age, um, while a lot of girls were uh, smitten with movie stars and, and actors, um, you know, before, you know, there kind of was a, a nomenclature of celebrity chef, um, I was pretty fascinated um, by, I will say the men, because they were, you know, <laughs> with a few notable exceptions, they were, you know, mostly male chefs in, in our industry. And um, so, you know, getting the opportunity to open a restaurant like Austria del Cerco, Sirio um, Maggioni is probably considered was, uh, he passed, unfortunately, this year, but, um, you know, was considered, um, you know, probably the greatest restaurateur in, in, in the world. And so um, getting to work for his family and, and opening Chirco with his three sons, um, it was one of the busy, you know, the, the biggest openings in, you know, in New York City at the time, it was about 25 years ago. And so, you know, because of that extraordinary experience, I met almost every, you know, famous chef in New York City who were either, you know, family friends or just, you know, industry friends of, of the Maccioni's. And so, um, you know, when it came time to go work for, for Mr. Wynn and to open Bellagio, the original plan was it was just going to be La Cirque and Chirco. The rest of the restaurants were going to be, um, you know, internally developed um, and so, you know, that's where I got to pull out the, the Rolodex and, and call old friends like, 
John George and Von Gerichten and Terry Simon and Todd English. Um, and, um, and then, you know, with through my colleagues, um, Julian Serrano and, and Michael Mina and Nancy Silverton. And so, you know, that became part of the extraordinary lineup um, that was Bellagio. And, and I think because, you know, I had spent more than a year on the operator side when I worked for the Maccioni's negotiating this management contract, which would be the prototype that, um, you know, most of the casino hotels um, used. It was a very unusual document because it really created this fantastic partnership um, and let restaurant operators do what they do best, which is run a kitchen and a dining room. And in partnership with the casino hotels, utilizing all of their resources and facilities, whether it was purchasing, receiving, security, um, you know, any of the support services, you know, rather than going to a bank to make your, you know, evening deposit, there was, you know, a casino cage that, um, you know, could handle such things. And so, um, you know, I think that's what made the strength of those partnerships in Las Vegas so successful. And, you know, then many of those management contract deals, you know, you'll now find um, around the world, certainly in the Middle East and in Asia. Um, so it was very exciting to be part of it. Really heady times, it sounds like, right? And the memories that you yes. have, the people you've <laughs> met, the experiences that you've shared. And obviously, it's, it all revolves around that word hospitality and people getting together, multiple nationalities. I mean, it's what brings us all together, you know, great food, drinking, and, and, you know, getting together with friends and family and all that sort of thing. So at a, at a whole nother level, though, what you're talking about, <laughs> it's, it's exciting to talk about. So after those experiences, you went on to start your own restaurants, and now we're talking about eight different ones, and obviously we're going to focus a little bit on Honey Salt, which is, you know, um, I'm sure near and dear to your heart based on the movement of farm to table and natural nutritious foods and that sort of thing. But what came next? I mean, you started other restaurants. What were the concepts? What were the themes? What were some of those properties like? Well, um, what came left next was um, uh, Steve Wynn sold his company, yeah. and I went to work for, for MGM Mirage in a similar capacity as um, Senior Vice President of, of Restaurant Development. But, um, you know, to be honest with you, um, you know, going from working from the Maccioni family, which was definitely a family business, um, and then moving to, to Mirage Resorts, which has you know, tens of thousands of employees. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, it was still run um, with a feeling more of um, of a family business than, you know, of a big corporation. MGM was different. MGM was definitely a corporate entity. Um, I stayed there for uh, two or three years. Um, and then I moved on. And Carrie Simon, who was my, um, you know, very dear friend, at the time, and he had moved out to Las Vegas to open Prime Steak for Jean-George Vongerichten. And um, we decided to, to team up, and we opened our um, first restaurant, which is called Simon Kitchen and Bar at the Hard Rock. Peter Morton, who was yes. the creator of Hard Rock Cafe, um, had, had bought the casino. And um, 
it was, um, you know, really an extraordinary time because we got to take the um, kind of attention to detail, our passion for food, um, but instead of all the formality that we had um, at Bellagio, we got to do it in this rock and roll setting. And um, so, the, you know, blue jeans and, you know, and, and, and casual uniforms and, and an extraordinary music scene. Um, the joint, you know, ha- hosted some of the, you know, the greatest bands um, from around the world. And we were right on the pool. We were across from Nobu. Um, and it was really um, an extraordinary experience, and it was an extraordinary kind of first step to be, um, you know, running our, our own operation together. Uh, then I married my husband, Kim Cantinwala, who's also a chef, and then we started doing some of our um, our own things as, as well. And um, Carrie passed away from a terrible uh, neurodegenerative disease. Mm-hmm. Um, called MSA. Hmm. I can't believe it, but it's probably almost six years um, now. But uh, incredibly fond memories, an extraordinary um, human being, and, uh, you know, a really uh, a partnership and a, a friendship that I will always cherish. I'm certain of that. I, I can tell how deep that is and in, in the experiences that you shared and how close you were. Let me ask you about service philosophies, because, you know, service is at the heart of our business, of course, and some would say in tourist destinations such as Las Vegas, where, you know, you have very little repeat business and you're constantly getting new customers in in the door all the time, maybe the service isn't going to be to the standards that, that it needs to be. And that's not in every case, of course, but obviously there's that camp that, that believes that. But then when you're, you know, running celebrity restaurants with reputations that are, you know, internationally founded, you really need to have such an exemplary level of detail. And I call this business one of a thousand details, because even if you get 990 of those details correct, it's the 10 you miss that, you know, you miss that the customer always sees, the guest always sees. So can you share, you know maybe some of your training philosophies, your service philosophies. What does training and service mean to you in terms of the guest experience? Sure. Well, you know, having personally run restaurants in um, New York, Los Angeles, you know, as as well as um, Las Vegas, I, I can tell you that um, Las Vegas, to me, has one of the best um, service, you know, cultures, you know, regardless of, um, you know, the issue of, you know, how often the the customers are there. And that's for a simple fact is that, um, you know, most people in our industry in Las Vegas are dedicated to our industry. In New York, you know, a lot of our our service team would be uh, actors or (laughs) musicians or, you know, or or some sort of other, you know, career, whereas, You know, a lot of people, because, um, you know, it can be a very lucrative business um, in Las Vegas, you know, choose to just make that their their primary profession. And so I think because you have that that dedication and, um, you know, and, and remember that, you know, in order to keep a restaurant, whether you're on the strip or off the strip, successful, um, 
year round, uh, you need that local business. And so, you know, I would say that people don't really, you know, differentiate between a casino customer or a local customer. Um, I, I think that, you know, there's also so much competition. When Bellagio opened 20 years ago, you know, the celebrity chefs were all in that. Now, every hotel um, property has has celebrity chef restaurants, even, you know, kind of the, the smaller, you know, um, hotels. And so, you know, that just makes the necessity to create that memory, that experience, even, you know, more powerful for, you know, for the service team, if you're going to, you know, get that, that repeat business and you're going to, you know, maintain your, your reputation. You know, that begs the question because it really brings up the whole idea of, you know, the power of name recognition and the celebrity sort of halo effect over a restaurant, yet nine times out of 10, you're going to go in that restaurant and that celebrity chef is not going to be in residence cooking on the line. That person's going to be in France or in, you know, New York City or San Francisco or taking care of, you know, 30 other properties that they have their name on. So how do they maintain the standards of, you know, consistency and quality and, and you know, giving the impression that the chef is really in the kitchen cooking, even though they're not. Sure. Well, you know, look, I have the the great fortune of of being able to call a lot of these um, celebrity chefs friends. So whether we're talking about John George or Danielle Ballou or Nobu or Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Feniger, these are very, very driven individuals. Um, they are incredibly hands-on, Thomas Keller, Michael Mina. Um, so even if they're not physically present in, in their restaurants on a day-to-day basis, um, you know, with, with technology, um, they're in, in touch with their staff. And because of their reputation and because of their pursuit of excellence, they're able to, you know, hire the best of the best because people want to go, you know, and, and, and work for, for these, um, names. So, you know, whether it's their general managers or their executive chefs in the individual properties, um, they create a culture, they create a service philosophy, as you mentioned before. Um, and then certainly their, their cuisine. Um, I just, um, help to, you know, orchestrate a, a partnership with um, Danielle Ballou to do a, a pop-up at um, the Blantyre, which is a Relais Chateau um, resort in, in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. And because Tanglewood and many of the arts venues um, weren't opening this summer, um, they weren't going to open the hotel, but they've done this Danielle Daniel Ballou pop-up using, you know, the whole team from Cafe Ballou in New York. And I've got to tell you, it just, you know, was like a seamless overnight operation and they're doing extraordinarily well. Um, and that, you know, is, is a testament to, to Danielle and, and to, to his team. And so, you know, even if he's not there, um, they um, they live up to those those standards that you know most of those celebrity um, chefs are able to create. That's beautiful, and that's why there's only yeah. there's only a handful of them. You know, um, in in each country and and around the world, um, you're not talking about hundreds. Um, 
you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, relatively small numbers when you, when you talk about the top tier of celebrity chefs. I appreciate that answer very much. Do you want to move on <laughs> to your inspirations for honey salt? Um, absolutely. Well, um, honey salt, as you, you said, it is my baby and, um, it's about a mile from, from our home in, in Las Vegas. And we were really inspired to do something. Um, my husband and I love to entertain, but sadly we work so much that, um, you know, that's, we don't get to do it as, as often as we'd like. So we really wanted to bring an experience of, you know, of entertaining in our home or in our backyard or on vacation, um, to our guests, um, at Honey Salt. And so, um, I did the interior design uh, with a friend of mine who is an interior designer who helped me, um, with some of the selections, but it's, you know, a really personalized kind of interior look that's just really warm and, and comfortable. And, um, you know, the menu is a, is a conglomeration of things that, you know, that we love. And so, you know, there's Nana's curry chicken, my mother-in-law's um, curry chicken recipe. Uh, there's healthy dishes that are inspired by me and there's decadent desserts, which I love. And, you know, there's, you know, kind of richer dessert, uh, richer desserts, richer, you know, dishes on the, on the menu that, um, you know, that are probably inspired by my husband or, or some of our chefs. There's cute things like the Biloxi fried chicken sandwich. Biloxi, Mississippi is where Kim, my husband and I met. And, you know, our cookbook, um, our honey salt cookbook, um, I, we call it a culinary scrapbook because, like a scrapbook, it tells the story of our backgrounds. It tells the story of the making of the restaurant. Um, but it takes you on these journeys um, to four different um, places that inspired us. And um, so there's regular restaurant recipes for dishes that are either currently on the menu or have been in on the menu in the past. But there's, you know, beautiful photography and dishes from Tuscany and Santa Barbara and Cape Cod and places that are, you know, are really near and, and dear to us, Vancouver, where our second honey salt is. So um, everything about it is just a personal experience. And as you said, um, you know, we try and, and, and source as many organic ingredients. We use as many local farms and, and producers as we possibly can. Um, uh, you know, we curate the, the cocktail and the beverage list. I'm currently just completely enamored with Casa Dragones, the, um, the tequila. Berta Nieves Gonzalez is the first woman tequila master, and she makes this, um, this artisan um, tequila. And um, so we get to just play around with things that, you know, that are, are really passion points for us. And I think that's what makes the restaurant special. And um, we have not closed. We have um, been able to remain open through the pandemic. Um, we just have um, <laughs> pivoted on, uh, on many fronts, as, as so many of my colleagues are, are trying to do across the country. Were you always able to maintain indoor seating? Nope. Um, you know, we had to close for about two and a half months. 
Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, in the beginning of the uh, pandemic, uh, Las Vegas was not as as hard hit. We did, you know, close when everybody closed, um, but we were able to reopen um, sooner than others, and um, we've been able to re- remain open. I mean, it would be horrible to have to just rely on outdoor dining now because if you have checked the temperatures recently, I think it was 115 degrees yesterday. Mm -hmm. So um, not the, while the rest of the country is, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of enjoying the best time of year to sit outside. It's, um, it's the worst for us, but um, no, we, um, we added a marketplace. We were selling every, Thing from hard to get commodities, so cleaning supplies and toilet paper. Um, when the government allowed um, for us, we started selling wine and beer and and cocktail kits. Um, and uh, we did a lot of uh, family style meal programs. We did um, with our friends at SecretBurger.com. We did cooking demos where you could come and and pick up. Um, part of the meal already prepared for you, but part of the meal, um, uh, of ingredients. And then you could, you know, watch and, and, um, and cook, uh, live alongside of, um, my husband and myself. Um, so we got as creative as we possibly can. And we were able to, um, to keep 25 people employed, which was really important to us. Um, we certainly weren't making any money, but, you know, we were able to keep our doors open. And as I said, 25 of our employees and, and their families, we were, you know, proud to be able to keep on payroll and keep things going during very, very troubling and uncertain times. Yes, I've lived much of that myself. It's funny, I've run restaurants and started them from scratch. And I was in the business for two decades before selling my properties and focusing on, you know, an online company. And then last year, out of the blue, who'd have thought, but I bought a restaurant just before COVID happens. Oh, my goodness. And we've done much of what you mentioned. I mean, we opened up a marketplace and did the curbside pickup and delivery model and, you know, and the liquor license for cocktails and beer and wine to go. We've done all of those things as well. And we're in the process of, you know, completely changing our business model into more of a marketplace than a sit-down restaurant, but it'll be a small combination of, you know, sit-down dining and the bigger market when it's all fully built out. We're in the midst of a renovation right now, but we're still operating all around it, but it's a lot of fun. Oh, that's great. Crazy times, you know, and who knows where it'll all end. Yep. (laughs) So, how often do you travel? I mean, you obviously have to maintain the consistency and the quality and all the things we've already talked about. And you have restaurants in Canada, so I'm assuming you you travel there frequently as well. Yes, we have um, two consulting projects in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the year before last, we finished a project in uh, in South Korea. Um, spent a lot of time in Vancouver. It's one of the most magical cities um, in the world. We did a project last year in, um, in London. Um, and then, you know, travel quite extensively through the States um, for the past six months. Uh, travel has come to a virtual standstill, right. although right. I'm talking to 
to you from um, my childhood home in Connecticut. We where um, can I ask you where you grew up in in Connecticut? West Hartford. Oh, West Hartford. That that's so that's so interesting. Uh, I grew up in Western Massachusetts. I dated a girl from Smith who lived in Simsbury, which is just neighboring on West Hartford. Just neighboring, yeah. I worked. We're in Western Mass. I'm sorry, Western Mass. Um, I grew up in a city called Holyoke on the banks of the Connecticut River. Of course, of course. Yeah. So yeah, um, those are my formulative years, and obviously, I spent quite a bit of time in Connecticut. Went to college in Rhode Island. Went to graduate school back in Massachusetts, and moved to Los Angeles and lived there for a few years and lived in New York. I've, I've moved around quite a bit myself. <laughs> well, then you will appreciate, uh, we, we come East and we spent a month in Cape Cod and now catching up with family before, um, heading back to, uh, to Las Vegas. Yeah. Cape Cod's a beautiful place. If you know, you know where to go and how to avoid mm-hmm. the traffic and all those sorts of things. We obviously grew up on the Cape as well, spending lots of beach time there as family. So yep, all the memories are flooding back and thanks for bringing them. <laughs> Let me ask you about your consulting projects. I mean, can you tell me what you specialize in and what some of those projects were about? I mean, really, um, you know, we work for companies, you know, anybody looking um, for, you know, a hospitality solution. So, you know, obviously the the regular stuff, we work a lot with luxury hotels and casinos, whether they're looking for celebrity chefs or to internally develop restaurants, but we've worked with the cruise line, we've developed um, proprietary catering programs for um for, um, you know, companies like NetJets. Um, we do a lot of work um, in the sports arena. We um, have spent the last three and a half years working with the Golden State Warriors on, on their new arena. Um, we do work in corporate campuses, um, you know, with the uh, advent of the tech companies and the Google campus, a lot of campuses, a lot of companies around the campus country as they're developing their corporate campuses have put the food beverage wellness um, of their employees at the at the forefront. Um, we've done iconic projects like the Rainbow Room um, mm-hmm. in in New York City. Um, and we've done fun projects like do culinary ideation for IHOP and uh, and BJ's Brewhouse and, and TGI Fridays. So um, really across the board, we've, we've worked for Starbucks. Um, and as I said, you know, we've, we're working on two of the tourism projects in, um, in Saudi Arabia. We've worked in, in Dubai. We've done the casino project in, in South Korea. Um, so it really kind of, you know, fuels my passion for travel, um, for reading and really for just staying current on, on what's happening um, around the world. You must have a very large team. Either that or you're nonstop constantly. <laughs> um, I do. I do because, you know, one of my passion points is, um, is something that um, when I worked for, for Mirage, um, that Elaine Wynn really instilled, and, and that's philanthropy. You know, one of the major f- 
corporate pillars of, of, of the Wynn organization is philanthropy, and it's something that I've brought to, to our company. And so I have been um, very proud for the last 12 years to be a trustee at the, at the Culinary Institute of America. I'm now on the International Advisory Board for the École Hotelière in, in Lausanne, Switzerland, which is definitely considered one of the best um, hotel schools in, in the world. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. And um, wow. we have recently launched um, a women's hospitality initiative to um, counter gender inequity in the restaurant industry in in Las Vegas, our some of our efforts have been put on hold, but one of the most exciting developments that had, that came out of um, that project that happened early this year is that um, we're going to be working with both UNLV in Las Vegas, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and the Culinary Institute of America, and launching one of the first women's leadership hospitality programs. The course will be um, a joint venture between the two schools. And if you can believe it, will be the first of its kind um, leadership class specifically for women in the, in the hospitality industry. And um, I'm very proud to say that during the, the pandemic, um, some extraordinary women in Las Vegas and men uh, got together and we launched um, a nonprofit called Delivering with Dignity. And um, as of last week, we were uh, over 100,000 meals that we were able to get directly delivered to those uh, most vulnerable in our in our community. And so we've partnered with four other local restaurants as well as um, started a branch in Reno and in Southern California. And it's um, a really innovative program because it's a partnership between the private sector and nonprofits. The nonprofits identify um, those most in need um, in their organizations. And then we have this incredible team of volunteer food heroes who um, come to the restaurants, pick up the food, and deliver it directly to the doorsteps um, of these people. So... It was a model that, um, you know, sprang up out of necessity because, you know, we have one of the most incredible food banks in the country. It's called Three Square. Um, but their model is is providing food in, in large quantities to churches or to, you know, youth centers. But, you know, because of the pandemic, all of those places being closed down, um, the only way to get the food to people was directly to their doorsteps. That's beautiful. What a noble program and how, I mean, I can't say enough good things about how this industry in general has rallied around to help, you know, all of those in need, whether they be the homeless or, you know, fellow restaurateurs or the, you know, the unemployed people that are in the restaurant business or just anyone in general. But that, those, were, those were incredible programs you just spoke of. Thank you. And, and, you know, to that point, I mean, you know, we're just a drop in the bucket. You know, there's people, there's restaurateurs all and chefs all over the country, you know, that are, are that just step up to the plate and, and they're doing. And so, you know, now's the time that we beg the question is like, who's going to help us? Because the first time that um, you open your doors as a restaurant, every parent-teacher organization, every arts group, every um, hospital, every, you know, 
charity representing every disease known mm-hmm. and not known mm-hmm. to mankind mm-hmm. is going to come to your door and ask for support, whether it's a gift certificate or, you know, or a meal or, um, you know, a live cooking demonstration. And, you know, and, and we rarely say no, but now's the time that people are going to have to step up, especially our landlords. I mean, I'm hearing stories across the country of landlords and just, you know, people who have the audacity to believe that they deserve, you know, a hundred percent of their rent when, you know, we are struggling, you know, so desperately to keep our doors open, to keep people employed. And so, the landscape of the restaurant industry is going to have a dramatically different, you know, look if we don't get federal funding, if we don't get, you know, help from insurance companies, if we don't get tip credits, um, not to deviate into a political discussion, but we're going to need help or we're going to have, you know, um, a dramatically different, you know, landscape. And, you know, some people are quoting up to 75% of restaurants in America may not survive. And, you know, it sounds ludicrous, but in my heart, um, I fear, I fear the worst. I don't think you're that far off base on that. And obviously, you know, that old phrase, survival of the fittest, is most certainly applicable to this situation, whether you're running a restaurant or any small business in America. You know, it's literally devastated so many different industries. And yeah, I fear for the future. We've actually, you know, we were fortunate enough to get a PPP funding. We were fortunate enough to get a SBA economic injury disaster loan. So there have been bright spots, you know, and I know, I do know that as of this time of recording, they're looking at another round of PPP, which certainly helped us keep our employees, you know, on the payroll, uh, much like yourself. So, you know, there are some programs that have been beneficial and I'm hoping for more, as are you. A hundred percent. What's your best advice um, to the independent operator out there, not just trying to survive this thing, but, you know, to come out the other side stronger, more profitable, more resilient for those that will survive? You know, I, I think that it's it's all about, you know, your relationships, whether it's your relationships with your own employees, um, you know, talking, communicating, um, communicating with your, your guests, making sure that people feel, um, safe and that, um, you know, that, that you are a, a reliable place, um, to do business. Um, uh, you know, but, but it's tough because, you know, there are so many people out of, out of work. Um, you know, people are definitely cutting back on their, um, discretionary spending. Uh, people, I think, are cooking more and eating at, at home more. So, you know, it's up to us to make sure that um, that we're listening um, and that we're, you know, providing, you know, a stellar experience where people feel safe and, and, and feel comfortable. Um, but it's, it's definitely going to, to be tough for a while. And, um, you know, I, I, I feel for my colleagues in, in states where, you know, you're open and you're closed and, um, it, it's, it's just, it's so difficult on, on everybody. It's so changing. Yeah. I mean, stay strong. A moment. 
And, you know, I, I was going to ask you next what you've seen in your own restaurants in terms of consumer confidence and if it's returning. But when states are having resurging cases and what looked to be under control and suddenly comes back with a vengeance, it's like, you know, it's a roller coaster ride. So sometimes people have, um, you know, gotten a little bit more comfortable and then all of a sudden they get all squirrely because of what the news says that day on the Today Show or whatever. And then it affects business on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. Are you seeing any of that or do you see pretty consistent, you know, customer confidence right now in your in your operations? I, I think, you know, the media has, has, has really um, blood on their hands with the irresponsibility of, of some of the reporting. I mean, there are bad people in every industry and there's certainly bad people running bars and there's like good people running bars. So, you know, to, to penalize everybody, um, because, you know, some bars in the state are, are out of control. Um, I, I feel like our industry has, has been, you know, hardest hit. And I, I, I think that all of the, you know, ancillary services, the bakers, the butchers, the fishermen, the farmers, florists, the musicians, all of the people that, you know, the the marketing people that support our industry, um, you know, are all, you know, casualties of, you know, uh, of these, you know, kind of decisions to to open and close. Um, You know, fortunately for for us, um, as I said, it's a mile from home. Um, You know, we're very community-based. And so, you know, I think people have felt you know, really comfortable with us from the beginning. We implemented emergency five-day medical leave for people. Um, you know, anybody that has a family member that's that's ill or certainly that's been diagnosed. I mean, you know, we we've just taken every precaution that you know that we can. Uh, we've also been lucky because people that have taken precautions. Um, you know, have still gotten the disease. There's so much that we don't know. Um, you know, we've got an army of asymptomatic people, you know, running around. And so, um, you know, you, you just, you just never know. Um, so I think you just, you know, kind of try and do the best that you, um, that you can you take it seriously, wear your mask. Um, and, really uh, to some extent you have to hope for the for the best but you know i can tell you um you know i i i've spoken to operators in new york city you know people who've spent tens of thousands of dollars and followed all of the you know legal requirements for what this outdoor dining you know looks like only to be told by a different organization there's so much confusion there's so many different regulatory bodies nobody is sure of what the regulations are we are certainly, as a country, not prepared um, for something of this magnitude. Um, that is clear um, on every front. You're absolutely correct. Well, no one knows what the future will hold, but there will still be opportunities for those that are you know, resilient and nimble and resourceful and creative and all those sorts of things. And that describes much of this industry. You know, the passion runs deep, but we also have to be, like I said, resourceful and always looking for the next opportunity. And I think COVID has forced a lot of operators to step out of their comfort zone and figure out, unless I do something radically different here, I'm going to be a statistic. Yep, you are right. You know, 
Anything else you'd like to share that we missed in the conversation, Elizabeth? I think we pretty much covered it all. Thank you for all the time. You've been a fascinating guest, and I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you are so welcome, and stay healthy and uh, enjoy uh, the uh, the rest of summer. Yeah, you know, we're right in the heart of it. You know, this is crazy, right? But obviously, just down the street from my house, there's been shark sightings, and a woman was killed like two days ago, maybe a half a half an hour away from me by a great oh, shark. Oh, no. Oh, so you're in Maine. We're in Maine. We're on the coast of Maine, and, you know, my kids and I are in the water just about every day, and then all of a sudden, everything does sort of an about-face, and you're like, are you kidding me? First it, time, like, first time ever, right? Yes, yes, first time ever, and, you know, it's all based on the seal population, you know, um, expanding and they're up here in Maine and now the sharks are following the seals and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and well, definitely do not swim in a wetsuit. <laughs> this is true. So that's like, I guess, the headlines now, but it's it's really close to home because literally it's a mile Yeah, terrible. Me. What a horrible story. It I, certainly it's is. on the front page of the post today. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. Uh, that was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Thanks again to the audience for staying with us, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks, guys, for listening to this week's episode. You know, I'm really fortunate. I get to speak to some really amazing people, everyday people that have done extraordinary things in this most extraordinary business. You know, passion and resilience and digging deep and, you know, just really constantly trying to improve our business is what we're all striving for. And I think that comes out really clearly in this episode. So I really appreciate you listening in. I want you to know that we have a new Facebook group. It's called Restaurant Rockstars Official. So please join that. It's a forum for our industry. And uh, also, if you like what you're hearing, please tell other restaurateurs that you know, and please feel free to leave us a review on iTunes because it will help other owners, operators, GMs, and uh, hospitality professionals find us. We'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to, to the, the Restaurant, Restaurant Rockstars, Rockstars Podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.